Yeah, I think if you uh, look at the headlines or read the papers or whatever you do to try to get information, uh, we need more of Jesus, right? <laughs> a little less of some of this other stuff. So Jesus, I want to thank you for being who you are in our lives. I want to thank you for being consistent, the same, the one who doesn't leave us, the one who doesn't forsake us, the one that doesn't have bad days, doesn't, doesn't get grumpy, you don't get tired, none of that stuff. I want to thank you for being who you are. The fact that you've saved us from ourselves, you have given us an eternal future in heaven. I want to thank you, God, for everything you've done in our lives. We just want to say we want to give time to you today. We want that time for you to be able to talk to us because some of us are on the verge of some things and we need some direction, a little maybe correction. We've gotten kind of headed the wrong, the wrong way. I pray that you would help us. For some of us that are, are afraid of what's in front of us and need some encouragement and some courage to face some things, I pray that we would hear from you both the correction that we need and the encouragement that we need. But we thank you for being all of those things and more in our lives. That you are that encouragement. You are that correction. You are that one who never leaves us or forsakes us, no matter what other people do in our lives. I thank you, God, for who you are and what you're doing. And so, God, we just, we just want to have this opportunity to set aside a lot of other distractions so that we can hear your voice. And at the same time, God, we want you to hear our voice. <laughs> and, and some of us are going to sound better than others. We get it. But we want you to hear our voice, God, because we're going to offer to you our praise. So thanks for this time together. In your name we pray. Amen. 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 So I've been negligent the last couple of weeks in, uh, in getting this point across, and I've, I've kind of forgotten that, and that is that, that we still have prayer during our worship times. And if you would like someone to be praying with you about what's going on in your life, the issues that you're facing, questions or concerns that you have, we have some people back here that are available for prayer. So I, we have the, the little prayer signs. You can see them lit up there on the wall. And uh, you can see the people who are appropriately virus-tired. Uh, they've, uh, they've got a little Parkway mask on. And uh, so they will give you prayer and blessing and no viruses. That's, uh, that's the way that works. So that's the way that's going to happen. Uh, good to see all of you that are live and online with us today. Um, I, I guess you're just going to have to uh, reach out and touch the computer screen or something and uh, get blessed that way uh, or you can certainly if you are those of you that are watching on uh, YouTube uh, you can actually type in and you can say hey could somebody be praying with me about this and uh, we'll pick those up and uh, we'll, we will have an opportunity not only for some people to be praying with you online but we'll also uh, have the opportunity to pick up that prayer request and uh, staff will be praying with you as we meet this week so uh, it's good to see all of you that are uh, online or well at least by faith I'm seeing you uh, I, I'm I'm more than pretending you're out there because I know you're out there. So uh, it's, it's good to have you with us as well. And those of us that are gathered here, uh, we're going we're gonna to sing loud. So those of you that are online, put the coffee down, get your slippers back on, stand up. You're going to sing with us, all right? So we're going to have worship together. So uh, let's just worship God.
back to every battle. Every battle you will overcome through this valley, your grace will be enough, Jesus, your grace. for today, that it's sufficient for tomorrow, Father, you are the same yesterday, today, and forever, and that we can trust you and we can rely on you, God, we have um, refuge in your name, God. Cannot hear you are seeing. 
Earlier in one of the songs, we sang about the fact that through this valley, in this valley, that his grace is enough. You know, Scripture says that where sin abounds, and I, and I think all you got to do is look around to see the, the abundance of sin, the, the selfishness, the anger, the, the arrogance, the, the immorality, there's all of this stuff. I think we can see that it abounds. Scripture says that where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. It's bigger. It's greater than sin. It's bigger than the problems. It's bigger than the anxieties and the frustrations. It's, it's bigger than all of that stuff, the grace of God. I just remind you, grace is what you need but don't deserve. Nobody earns it. Nobody's good enough. Nobody can come to God and say, hey, God, I am so cool. You should forgive me and let me go to heaven. Nobody gets to do that. 
We get to come to him and say, God, I'm broken and I'm weird and I'm messed up and I need help. And he says, I'm going to love you enough to give you what you need and don't deserve. You need grace. Grace is greater than all this stuff. So can we just kind of pray from that perspective? Fair enough? Father, I thank you that where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. So God, where people are angry and where people have gotten selfish and where people are expressing their, 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 their anger and their frustration with each other by being violent and angry and yelling and taking sides and just doing all kinds of stuff, I thank you that in the midst of all of this stuff that we see happening around us, I thank you that your grace is greater than all of that. And the reality is, is that the people on both sides of the street that are yelling at each other both need to be forgiven. They're both just sinners trying to make their way through life. They're just trying to do what they think is going to help. And God, at the end of the day, people on both sides of the street just need to be saved. They just need you to come and forgive them. They need you to set them free from their anxiety and their worry and their hatred and their prejudice and their fear and all the stuff. You just, you just need to save us from ourselves. That's the only chance we have is for you to make us different. If, any be, if anyone be in Christ, they are a new creation. Old things pass away and all things become new. That's your promise to us. And so God, we just pray for this sweeping wave of grace to move through our valley and that people would be made new, be made over again, be born again to become somebody that they were supposed to be instead of the person that they had become. We need your grace to come through our valley. So we just ask for that. Humbly, but somewhat desperately, we need you, God. Help us. Help us. In your name we pray. Amen. 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 God bless you. Hey, as you're seated, just like wave at somebody. You, you, you still can't like do anything more than that. So you can just, just wave. That's what you can do. So you get that down. You get that down. Trinity's got the, she's got the queen wave thing. See, look at that. She's got the queen wave. She's been practicing that. That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. So, yeah, so practice your queen wave and, and so you can, you can wave at everybody. Well, it's good that you guys are here with us. Thanks for being a part. Thanks to those of you that are online. Just remind you of a couple of things. Uh, in, in the old church, we, 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 we passed things out and we collected things and none of that happens anymore. So if you need the announcements and you want to know what's going on and you need to keep up to date with all the things that are happening, uh, then you need to get online and find out what's happening there. Uh, same way with offerings. Uh, that happens uh, either the ushers are there as you leave or the, the offering boxes are, are back here on the wall uh, or you can use the whole online process. And again, I would just remind you, anything that you can do uh, online to... Uh, to stay connected is great, so send us your prayer requests. Let us know if we can be praying with you. That's a wonderful thing. In just a second here, we're going to watch the announcement video, but there's a couple of things that didn't uh, make it on that video, and uh, we, we need to announce those. One of them I'm going to talk about afterwards, but this one I need to talk about first because uh, this is a historic moment today. You, you, you people are in the company of greatness. Um, there's, 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 a, there's a person here that is a phenomenal, an amazing talent, uh, this person is, is beyond normal. Uh, this is in the, the upper echelons of, of the world and society. Uh, let me introduce you to Jim Murray, who got a hole-in-one on hole number two at Grants Pass Golf Course. And uh, I'm, I'm thinking that we should celebrate that the way they do in Japan, not here. 
because um, uh, if, if anything you, you know about golf, uh, golf is, is quasi-Christian, but not completely. That's why they drink a little and smoke cigars on the golf course. So it's not completely Christian, but a lot of Christians are out there. But in America, if you get a hole-in-one, then all your buddies are supposed to buy you drinks afterwards. That's the tradition connected to golf. Now, in Japan, if you get the hole-in-one, you have to buy everybody else. So I'm thinking that Murray owes us all lunch because he got a hole in one. Uh, we're going to celebrate it the way they do in Japan. So uh, Jim, we're incredibly proud of you, but we're also looking for our reward for your success. I already brought my tie envelope. Oh. <laughs> oh. Well, that leads right into the volunteer lunch that's immediately following this service uh, for all of you that are volunteering. So we got the video. Let's watch the announcements. Parkway for your place of worship this morning. We would love to connect with you. If you could take a moment to let us know you're here by filling out our digital connect card. In addition, that connect card has a place where you can fill out prayer requests. As a staff, we come together every week and we pray for you. So we would consider an honor if you would let us come alongside you for any need. Or if you have been submitting prayer requests, let us know any updates or praise reports. And we like to celebrate those alongside you as well. Thank you so much for your faithfulness and giving. Our ushers will be at the back doors on your way out at the end of service where you can drop off your tithes and offering, or you can do that online. You can access our giving site through our app or directly on our website at the URL below. We so appreciate your continued faithfulness in this area. Hi, I'm Bethany and I'm the Kids and Families Pastor here at Parkway. I'm here to share with you about tons of exciting events happening here at Parkway for Kids and Families. We have events happening on Wednesdays and Thursdays starting in July, and also a fun family night out in August. Check out our website for more details. We can't wait to see you. What a blessing the people of Parkway are to this church. We've told you that the new Parkway doesn't work without you, and you have shown up in many ways and blessed us with your gifts. Thank you. On June 28th at 1230 after service, we are going to have an all-volunteer huddle. There will be lunch. We'll have more raffles. We'll also give you um, some updates of what's coming up here at Parkway. There's also going to be an opportunity for you to give us feedback. So if you are a current volunteer, we invite you to come and join us at that lunch after service on June 28th. If you are not a current volunteer, now is the time to get involved. You can let us know how you are interested in joining the volunteer team by going to our website at People of Parkway and then come on out to the lunch on June 28th and we'll get you plugged in and started and all the things that you need in order to get connected and serving here at Parkway. Well, that's all I've got for you today. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. We are so glad that you're here. I hope that you feel God's presence more than ever before. So be sure to stay connected with us online on Instagram and Facebook. All right, let's do church. So yeah, immediately following this service is our volunteer lunch. So any of you that are, are volunteering currently, uh, this is our way of saying thank you. And those of you that are interested in finding out about volunteering, uh, it's also a great way to find out some of the opportunities and the things that are happening and just places for you to be able to express your gifting in your ministry. It's also a real convenient way to celebrate Jimmy and Dee Dee's sixth anniversary. So I appreciate you guys coming. So uh, we're, the whole church is just having lunch to celebrate your wedding. Isn't that a cool thing? 
That's a wonderful thing. Yeah, so uh, we're going we're gonna to have all kinds of fun celebrating today. We're going to celebrate volunteers. We're going to celebrate sixth anniversaries. We're going to do all that stuff. Hey, if you are in uh, first through fifth grade uh, or thinking about going into first through fifth grade, uh, ever were in first through fifth grade, I don't know. However that, however that all works, uh, you, <laughs> come on down this way and you're gonna, we're going to uh, get you guys kind of collected and headed off in the direction that you need to go. And Kylie's waving at me because I forgot last week, uh, middle school, uh, all the middle school students are gathering together with uh, Kylie back there and you guys are headed off to the Hull Center. So we got people going in, in all kinds of directions here. So we got some of them coming this way. Is that Zeke? Is that who? <laughs> Dude, that's a hat, man. That is, that's, a, that's the real deal right there, buddy. Yeah, yeah. I'm, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now it looks like one of those birthday sombreros they give you, you know, at the Mexican food restaurant when you go on your birthday and then they all sing some weird version. Of it. That's kind of what that looks like now. But anyway, hey, we want to pray for all you guys before you get out of here. I saw some of the rest of them already sneaking off. So uh, some of them, I think, are already over there waiting for you. But Father, we thank you for all of our students. We thank you for their lives, the destiny that you have for them. I pray, dear Father, that you would help them to connect with you because when they find you, they find themselves. And so I pray that that would happen for them today. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Bless you guys. Thanks. Go have fun. Go have fun. One other announcement that didn't make it uh, onto the video because it just happened this week, and uh, I want you to be alert to it and aware of it. Uh, you know, we were going to do family camp, and that was supposed to happen July like 9, 10, 11, 12, somewhere right around in there. Uh, but uh, we lost our reservation. You know, they shut down the parks because of the virus thing, and then they said they were going to open it back up, but you have to call uh, two weeks in advance. But the problem is, you know, if, if you want to go on Friday, you, can't, you can only call two weeks before that Friday to go. But if the guy called the day before on Thursday but said he wanted that spot for four days, then he can book it beyond that. So the way the whole system works, there's no way you can guarantee that you're ever going to get to go when you want to go. And we have the whole B loop reserved for us so that we could go and have family camp together and just really have a good time. And we just lost all of that. And there was no way to put it back together again. So what we're going to do is that we're going to go and on Saturday, June 11th, we're just going to go for the day up at the lake. We're going to take a bunch of our big pop-ups and we're going to put them up in the lawn. And uh, there's uh, going to be some games. Bethany and Kylie are both working on games for kids and families. And so that'll be happening. We've got a bunch of boats and stuff going. So we'll be down at the lake. So we've got some pop-ups that we'll be putting down on the shore. And we'll be in the day use area up at um, Stewart Park. So the same place where we were going to camp up at Lost Creek Reservoir, but we'll be in the day area. So what we're just asking you to do is uh, pack a lunch and come on up and, uh, you know, just nibble on your lunch however you want during the day. And then that evening, we're going to provide uh, dinner. So there's a place for you to uh, let us know if you're coming. You can do it. There's a Facebook uh, app that's out there or an invitation that's out there, and you can let us know you're going to that, or you can go to parkwaycc.com and slash family, family day, uh, and you can let us know. Because I'd hate for you to get there and then not get your Taylor sausage dog, cook, you know, because hand you a bag of soggy, you know, Fritos or something and say, that's all we got left. Sorry, you didn't tell us you were coming. So I wouldn't want that to happen. So uh, let us know you're going to be there. That way we can uh, 
be sure and get you, get you fed for dinner. So we're just going to go up and have a good time, have fun, get sunburnt, come home. It's, it'll be fun. It'll be fun. So, yeah, July 11th. Yeah, July 11th. Yep, in the day use area up at Lost Creek Reservoir. That's where we're going to be. All right. So we've been uh, doing this whole end times thing, talking about uh, what prophecy says about uh, where we are and what's going to be happening and the changes that are going to happen in our culture and our society that are going to be happening not only in America, but are going to be happening worldwide and how we've moved forward in that uh, prophetic agenda. And so we, we've been talking about that and we want to come back to that, but we want to come back to it from a, from a very different perspective. Quite often when we think about end times, we go to the end of the Bible and we read the last book of the Bible. We read Revelation. How many of you have read Revelation? Manage to work your way through it. Good for you. Good for you. Uh, how many of you understand it? Got it all figured out. You know all about the horsemen and the trumpets and the, the, the angels and people standing on the ocean and standing on the shore. And you got it all? Got, got it nailed down? Got that figured out? Yeah, good luck with that, right? Um, when, we, when we get to, to reading about the end times, there's a, a, there's a term for it. So you get to learn big words here today. It's called apocalyptic literature. It's directly connected to places like Daniel and Ezekiel in the Old Testament. Revelation is very much written in the style of Daniel and Ezekiel. How many of you have ever worked your way through Daniel or Ezekiel? Yeah, you got that whole thing, right? So you got the throne and God's presence is on the throne and the throne's levitating in the air and it's got beasts on all four corners that are all different and they got eyes all over them and then down on the bottom they got wheels inside of wheels. It, it, it sounds almost like a gyro type thing and so when the throne wants to move the throne doesn't have to turn like this. It just kind of goes this way, and the wheels that are inside the wheel spin and turn are there. That's the book of Ezekiel for you. And um, that stuff is a little hard to understand, and it's a little hard to keep up with. Now, sometimes we begin to get a picture on things, but it's because we have some perspective on it. So in, in, a good example is in Daniel chapter 2. So in Daniel chapter 2, you, you read Daniel a couple of, you know. So, right, so, so Daniel is in exile from Jerusalem. King Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonians come in. They siege the city. They tear the thing down. They haul off these people. Daniel is one of the brighter, more well-educated, good-looking kind of young guy. Nebuchadnezzar says, don't kill that guy. We need guys like that that work in our kingdom. So that he's taken off as an exile. Daniel is now being trained in all of the university studies in, in uh, Babylon. And so the king has a dream and it just, it troubles him and he wants to know what it means. Here's the catch. The king can't remember what the dream was. He just knows that it must have been important because he's freaked out. So he gets up in the morning and he calls for all the wise guys and he says, hey, you need to tell me what this dream means. And they said, well, tell us the dream. We'll give you our best interpretation of it. Nebuchadnezzar goes, well, that's the issue. I can't remember it, but I know it was important. And they're going, king, nobody can give you the interpretation to a dream you can't remember. That's not going to happen. Nebuchadnezzar says, I'm serious. If you don't come up with the answer, I'm going to kill you all. You can do that kind of thing when you're the king. And uh, so they're all freaked out. Daniel's not invited to the meeting, but he is in the fraternity of all of these wise men and philosophers. And he finds out, wait, I'm going to get executed. I didn't even get a shot at this. So he sends a message to the king and says, look, give me till tomorrow. Let's see if we can do this. And God reveals to Daniel the dream. So the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had was of this field, and there's this giant statue in this field. 
The giant statue is made of four different parts. At the top part is this golden head, and in the center part and arms is this silver part, and then there are the bronze legs, and then at the bottom there are feet that are made of clay and iron. And this giant statue standing in the field, this rock comes rolling out of nowhere, smacks this big statue right in the feet, it falls over, crumbles and breaks into a bazillion pieces. The rock that knocks it over sits there on the ground and grows and grows and grows and becomes this huge mountain and fills the whole earth. All that God tells Daniel is, Daniel, you need to tell Nebuchadnezzar that the gold part is him. It's his kingdom. And there's going to be three kingdoms that are going to come after you. And in the time of the fourth kingdom, God is going to establish his kingdom on the earth. That's all that Daniel knows. That's all that Nebuchadnezzar knows. We look back on all of that and have, have some sort of idea, at least we think we do, of what that was all about. So if the gold part was Nebuchadnezzar, the kingdom that overthrew his kingdom, the silver part of it would be which kingdom? Any history buffs? Anybody read any of that? The, the Medes and the Persians, the Medo-Persian Empire, Right? During the time of Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, the, the Medo-Persians came in, wiped out the Babylonians, and took over from them. Well, the, the Medo-Persians are having a great time until this other guy shows up. What's the next kingdom? The bronze legs. Alexander the Great. The Greeks come in. In fact, that Alexander the Great dies in that part of the world. Comes all the way from Greece, gets all the way over into what we would know of as Iran, Iraq, gets over into that part of the world. That's where he dies. But the Greeks overthrow their empire. Then who gets come, to come along and, and, and take the Greeks out? The Romans. During the time of the Roman Empire, who is born? Jesus. He's the rock that comes and hits that throne or hits that statue in the feet, crumbles, the kingdoms of this earth are destroyed, the kingdom of heaven is announced, and the kingdom of heaven grows and fills the whole earth through the church on the planet. So I would just tell you that when it comes to apocalyptic literature, when it comes to looking at things like Revelation and trying to understand it, you're not going to understand it unless God tells you what it is tells you what it means, and then you're able to look back and go, oh, I see how it all worked. And the problem with looking ahead is you don't know what it means exactly. You're looking forward and not back, so you have no perspective, so you're just guessing on what's going on up there. So if someone comes along and tells you, hey, I've got this thing all figured out. I know exactly what's going to happen. I know what this means. I know what that means. I know which day this is going to take place. I got it all charted out. I got it all figured out. I'm just going to tell you the person's wrong. Okay? Now, they may have by accident got lucky and are right about a couple of things, but it will only be by accident. It will not be because they have it figured out. And until that day when God comes and says, Jimmy, here's what it means, and then you get to watch it happen, and then you can look back on it, and then you're going to be able to say, oh, I knew what God was up to all along. That's the only time you're going to get a chance to do that is when it happens that way. But alongside all of that kind of literature, the thrones and the wheels and wheels and the, the trumpets and the blasts and the this and the... In the middle of all of that stuff, there's this other little book in the New Testament that talks to us about some very practical advice about how we should live and how we should be thinking in end times. It's 
the last book that Paul wrote, or the last letter that he wrote, at least the last one that we have a copy of, and it's 2 Timothy. It's written from Paul to his son in the faith, his dearly beloved child in the faith, and Paul is writing to him this very personal letter. It's personal in the sense that he is writing one-on-one, Paul to another person. It's not Paul to a group of people. It's Paul to one other guy. There's all these references to family members. There are references to other people that we've never heard of before, but Timothy and Paul had both run into them in the past and had past experiences with them. There's also references to events that took place in their lives. It's a very, very personal letter. And with it comes some very, very practical advice about how we are supposed to live and and how we are supposed to face these end times. It's, as I said, it is very, very plain and easy to understand. It contains what we would call pastoral advice. Uh, and I know that's not, that's not advice from me, <laughs> though I sometimes get that title of pastor. What by, by pastoral, we, we are actually using kind of an English version of the Greek word uh, poimen, which means shepherd. That's So I got this one now. Oh, it went away. There we go. So this word, when we talk about pastoral advice, uh, as I said, it comes from the the Greek word that means to be a shepherd. The, The Greek word for shepherd is two verbs. They took a verb that means to feed something, and they took the verb that means to protect something, and they shoved those two verbs together, and they said if you get a feed protector, not somebody who's protecting the feed, that somebody who's feeding and protecting, if you get a feed protector, that's a shepherd. Because that's what feed that's what shepherds do with sheep. They feed them, they protect them. Right? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. Right? That whole concept of being a shepherd. This advice is coming to us from the Apostle Paul, and it is designed to provide for us things that we need, and it is also designed to protect us from some things we need to be careful of. And so we're going to get pastoral, we're going to get shepherd advice out of 2 Timothy. So did you find it yet, 2 Timothy? It's on your screen, it's in your book, Uh, there's a Bible in front of you, I don't know what page it's on, sorry, but there's an index in the front. That will help you. So 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. I love that. He always tells you who it is. Why do we sign letters at the end? You get a letter, then you got to look at the end of it to find out who sent you the letter. This is a better way to go. I like this. Put your name at the top. Take credit for it right off the beginning. (laughs) This is from Paul. And by the way, it's not just from your buddy, Paul. This is from your friend, Paul, who is an apostle, who is writing to you for some particular reasons. To Timothy, my beloved child, Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. So some of you that are familiar with some of the more uh, more details connected to Paul's letters, when Paul says, hi, this is Paul the Apostle, I'm writing this letter to you, he says grace and peace. Almost all of his letters start with grace and peace. The exception to that are these letters to Timothy where he says grace, mercy, and peace. It's just a reflection of how personal this letter is. Paul is concerned for his friend Timothy, his son in the faith, his beloved child in God. He is concerned for him, and he says, Timothy, you need mercy. 
not just grace and peace. You need something extra. You have a tough assignment in front of you. He says, I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. I remember your tears and I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. There is something that Paul is trying to remind Timothy of before he really gets down to the practical advice. And we're going to work our way through that practical advice, but I I need you to see the context and understand the setting that Paul's trying to put this in so that it makes sense to you. When, When Paul opens up this letter to Timothy, he is reminding Timothy that Timothy is neither first nor alone when it comes to living out his faith. He is neither first nor is he alone. This thing has history to it. There are people who have walked with God before him. There are people who have been through experiences. Some of them were very difficult experiences. Some of them were amazing experiences. And for a lot of people, they were a little bit of both. They were both amazing and difficult. Timothy, you're not not the first one here. You're not the first one to face tough times. You're not the first one to face a difficult assignment. You're not the first one to find yourself in a place where what you are being called to do is more than you have the ability to do. You're not the first one to be in this place. And by the way, you are also not alone. The history that we have that is given to us in Scripture tells us that God is in the habit of helping people who find themselves in overwhelming situations. He is in the habit of helping people who find themselves in overwhelming situations. In in Hebrews chapter 12, we we begin to see a statement connected to that. Some of you who've read the book of Hebrews know that Hebrews chapter 11 is this long description of these incredible people of faith, right? So it goes back and it talks to us about Noah and and him building the ark. It talks about Abraham and being called out of his country and and to a place he's never been before that God has promised he'll find a blessing in. And it, it talks about all the struggles that those early patriarchs had. It talks about Moses and the deliverance from Egypt and slavery. And it just goes through this incredible list. And at the end of that list, it says that these are a people of whom the world is not worthy. These are amazing people. These are people that God put into incredible circumstances, and they are people who rose up and stood up and accomplished what they needed to accomplish with the power of God in their lives. So Hebrews chapter 11 is this long description, and it's very, very honest with you. It will tell you that some of these people faced incredible difficulties and tribulations, and they were not delivered from them. They were delivered through them. But it will also tell you that there were other people who had experienced miraculous kinds of things from God and experienced deliverance that some of their brothers and sisters didn't experience. Scripture is very, very honest about that. But it's also very honest about the fact that God is the one who gave them the strength to face whatever they faced. He was the source and provider of their comfort through difficulty as well as their experience of blessing in their lives. He was the one who did these things for them. And they were people of whom the world was not worthy. And then chapter 12 says, Therefore, because of all of that, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, 
Let us also lay aside every weight and every sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. I want you to understand this is a, an amazing proclamation that Paul makes here. It's an incredible illustration, and it's one that's a little bit lost on us because we don't understand running races the way that they talked about running races. You can go to Olympia in Greece, where the Olympics comes from, and you can see the stadium that, there, that is there. It is not a round stadium in the way that we think. The track that they ran on was not a round track. It was an up and back. And so if you ran the 100 meters, there is a place, and, and I've seen this, and I've stood on them. There's a place where they have got uh, granite or marble, depending on, on uh, the, the track that is built. They have this, this, this granite that has been placed in the ground, and there are two grooves that are, that are cut out of the granite, and that's for you to start. You get up and you hook your toes into those grooves. And if you run 100 meters, it's as hard as you can go down to where the next set of blocks are. If you run the 200, you go down and touch the block, turn around and come back. It's an up and back. There are seats on both sides. They're carved like an amphitheater. There are seats that are carved on both sides, and that's where the spectators were. There is a place at one end where the athletes would come in and their training facilities are back in the back and they would come through and they would come up to the starting blocks and they would dig their toes in and they would get ready for the race. When it was time for them to run, when it talks about casting off encumbrances, weights, sins, things that would slow us down, some of you think that the runners that you see in the Olympics are dressed rather scantily. They don't have a whole lot on. They got just enough clothes on to pin that number on so they can figure out who crosses the finish line. In Paul's day, when you came up and dug your toes into the starting blocks, you took everything off and you ran naked. That's how you participated in those games. When Paul uses this illustration, it's very, very clear to the people he's writing to. When you get up to the starting blocks and it's your time to run, you cast off everything that would slow you down literally, so that you can make it to the end and win the race. That's the picture he's using here. What is he telling us? He's telling us these grandstands are full of witnesses. They are full of the people who have run before us. Abraham is sitting there. Moses is sitting there. Joshua is sitting there. Caleb is sitting there. Esther is sitting there. Ruth is sitting there. And every one of them had a moment in their life when it was their turn to run the race. And they came in and they dug in their toes and they took off and they won. And they're sitting there in the grandstands holding on to the medal that they won and they are cheering for us. And Paul is saying, when it's your time to run, you better get rid of any attitude that's going to keep you from being who God wants you to be. You better get rid of any habit that's going to keep you from being who God wants you to be. Anything, anything, anything that would slow you down spiritually, you better get rid of. And the picture is very vivid. Just like those runners that walk into that arena, when they walk up to the starting blocks, they get rid of everything so that they can run unhindered. Paul says, because we are surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, let us run 
with endurance the race that is set before us, laying aside every weight and sin that would cling to us. And we look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus said, no servant is greater than his master. We're going to endure the same kinds of things that he endured, face the same kinds of things that he faced, especially as we move into these last days. And one of the things that we are going to be called upon to do is to endure. To endure. Not to just have moments of brilliance, not to just have minutes of faith, but to be people who live by faith 24-7 who work their way through the difficult circumstances and situations. We have to have endurance to run the race that is set before us. Because just as in our Olympics now, you can run 100 meters or you can run 26 miles. And God is calling us to be able to run the 26 miles. Run with endurance. And then in the process, you have to despise the shame. Some of you have lived long enough that you can remember a time when being a Christian was kind of a cool thing. I mean, it was kind of acceptable. It's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Those people go to church all the time. They're good people. They're neighbors of mine. I've known them for quite a while. They're good people. That's not that way anymore. What, you, you, you go to church? Isn't that, isn't that the place that hates all the gay people? Why, do you, why are you going there? That doesn't make any sense. You guys are part of the problem. It's changed. It's changed. And we've become masters at publicly shaming people who post the wrong thing on Facebook or who actually post the right thing. They just don't use the right words to say the right thing. And we will still publicly shame them. Even though their heart was right, they had the wrong word. They used the wrong sentence. They had the wrong phrase. It's going to become more and more difficult, and it's going to come harder and harder. And the neutral ground in the middle is going to go and go away, and it's going to become invisible. And suddenly you're going to have to decide whether you stand for the kingdom of God or whether you're going to pick a side. Because when you stand for the kingdom of God, you find yourself opposed to both sides. Jesus endured the cross, and he despised the shame. It came from saying, I'm the son of God. And I'm here to represent the kingdom of God, not some human kingdom. We're being called upon to do that. And what we face may be hard, but it's not impossible. And that's what Paul is trying to remind Timothy of. Timothy, it's tough, and it's actually going to get tougher. I have some clue, Paul says, of what's coming. He's going to say in this letter, in the last days, terrible times will come. Timothy, I've got a little bit of a clue. It's not going to get better. It's going to get harder. I need you to know that. But I need you to know you're going to be able to make it. I need you to know that it's not going to be impossible. I need you to know that it's going to be okay. It's proven by the fact that God can do anything he wants, anytime he wants, with anybody he wants, any way he wants. And in the middle of all of that, We are surrounded by people who've already experienced the same kinds of things we are going to have to experience. This faith did not start with us, and we are not alone. Our spiritual ancestors have something to tell us. The reason that I think that's so important is because of how our human uh, responses are to times when we begin to feel threatened. 
One of the things that happens when we begin to feel threatened is that we tend to reduce our existence. We tend to reduce the universe down to us. And so we become the center of our universe. We begin to define everything and everybody else in terms of whether they are a threat to us or whether we think we can get something from them that we need. In the most extreme example of that, someone who feels threatened may so retreat into themselves that they become almost catatonic. They don't speak. You can't communicate with them. You can't reach them. They may or may not kind of come out of those moments and may communicate with the outside world for a while, but as soon as they feel some sort of threat, they just retreat back even farther. That's the extreme of it. I just need you to know that that illustrates what everybody does whenever you feel threatened. Whenever you feel threatened, you move yourself to the center of your universe. You begin to pull in your experiences and relationships, and you begin to evaluate everybody in terms of, is that person a threat to me? Or is that person somebody I can get something from that will help me? We've watched it happen. I would just would tell you that the people who are driving around by themselves in their car with their mask on are people who have retreated into a very small universe. They feel threatened. You are a threat to their existence. And they must protect themselves from you. They are evaluating you in terms of how much of a threat are these other people to me. And I have to withdraw to a place where I can take care of myself and where I'm safe. And if you interact with them and don't keep the proper distance, if you don't do the things that they believe are your responsibility to do to keep you from being a threat to them, you will get a reaction and a response. As they pull themselves in more and more into a smaller and smaller world where they themselves are at the center of it. That's what human behavior does. Paul is calling Timothy to a different place. Paul is calling Timothy to a place that says, by faith, Timothy, you need to put Jesus at the center of the universe, not Timothy. You're going to face some tough things. And when you face those tough things, you're going to be tempted to put Jesus to the side and put Timothy at the center and start to draw your world in so that you can protect yourself and keep yourself safe. And you're going to start evaluating everybody around you, not in light of how Jesus sees them. You're going to evaluate them in terms of how you see them. Ooh, this person is a threat to me. I have to resist them. I have to draw back away from them. This person over here has something that I need. I have to find some way to get that from them and then bring it back with me to my little universe where I'm at the center. Paul is saying, Timothy, the stands are full of people who've already gone through difficult things. And when it's your turn to run the race, you need to run without any hindrances and your perspective needs to be that Jesus is at the center of your universe, not Timothy. So I'm just going to be a little bit bold here, and I'm going to tell you that a little religion on the side is not going to be enough for the days ahead. A little religion on the side is not going to be enough for the days ahead. If you are living at the center of your universe and you got a little bit of Jesus over here, that's not going to cut it. Jesus needs to come back to the center. Jesus needs to come back to the center. Timothy had a tough job assignment in front of him. 
Paul the Apostle had taught night and day, twice a day, for three years. Paul had taught in Ephesus. And Paul is telling Timothy, Timothy, I need you to lead that congregation for me. That's the most literate, well-educated Christian community on the whole planet at its time. And Paul's telling Timothy, you need to go and talk to those people about what's going on. That's got to be a little intimidating, right? I mean, you can, you know, how long? In the first few months, you can say, well, remember Paul said, remember Paul said, sooner or later, they're going to expect you to come up with something other than just what Paul said. It is also the place that has the most organized resistance to the church of any city in the Near East at that time. This is a place where they rioted for hours, chanting in the amphitheater, thousands of people. Because the people that made little silver idols and statues for people to worship felt their business was threatened by this new religion that said, God doesn't look like something you can make with your hands. He's bigger than that. Rioting in the streets, people chanting and screaming for hours on end until the public officials came in and said, the Roman government is going to send the army in here if you people don't calm down. You need to be quiet and go home. Sound at all like anything you might have experienced or heard of lately? I will just tell you that's not new behavior. It happened 2,000 years ago in the city of Ephesus when some people began to feel threatened. What did they do? They responded. And authorities had to come in and try to deal with it. The difference being at that point, the thing they were reacting against was this new faith, this new concept of believing in the one and only true God. And Paul's sending Timothy there and saying, why don't you go pastor that church? Pretty simple. No big deal. Don't worry about it. <laughs> why don't you go there? They're also on the verge of the first wave of organized government persecution of the church. For Emperor Nero is on the verge of coming to power. And when he does, there will actually be organized persecution against the church. And Paul is writing to his son in the faith, Timothy. He's saying, Timothy, you need to be ready. You need to be ready. You need to know you didn't start this thing. You're not first. You need to know you're not alone. God is with you, and we can handle all of this stuff. And in the midst of all of that intimidation, He's saying, I need you to understand that the situation is tough. The assignment is big, but Jesus is tougher and Jesus is bigger. You're not alone in this. You're not alone. And Paul recognized Timothy's weaknesses. This is the, this is the guy where Paul says, Timothy, I know what happens when you get under stress, buddy. I know what happens. And your stomach gets upset. Your bowels get all a little weird and you and food are not good friends. I understand that. He's saying, Timothy, you need to take a little wine for your stomach. I need you to be sober, but I need you to have a little medicine in there because I understand when stress hits, it's how your body reacts. That's how intimately Paul knows Timothy. He says, I, I, I've, seen, I've seen what happens when we're under stress, Timothy. <laughs> you, you make a lot of trips to the bathroom. <laughs> that's, that's how you and stress get along. He says, Timothy, you need to take something for that. Help yourself out as much as you can, but you need to understand, Timothy, that Jesus is bigger and he's going to get you through this. I need you to know that. He says, you can trust in this. He says, Timothy, this faith came from your grandmother. It came through your mother. It came from me. 
You know us. You've seen our life. You've seen what we've lived through. You were there with me. Timothy, you've been there. You've seen God's faithfulness. Don't get freaked out by the stuff that's coming. Don't get, don't get freaked out. And I, I, will, I will pass on to you something that one of my mentors told me. He told me that what we need is plain vanilla Christianity. <laughs> plain vanilla Christianity. And I remember him saying that, and I'm thinking, I, I, I would prefer not to have plain vanilla Christianity. Because vanilla ice cream is what you use to make good ice cream. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, my dad and my grandson, Jack, they both think that vanilla ice cream is the best ice cream. I think vanilla ice cream is what you start with so that you can add the other stuff to it. Because why have vanilla when you can have Rocky Road? I mean, everybody knows Rocky Road's way better than vanilla, you know? So why have vanilla? Let's, let's add something to it. I got this fancy little ice cream maker that Jeanette got for me, and uh, right now you can buy strawberries. So I use my simple little vanilla ice cream recipe, and that's the starting base for adding the, the strawberries so that you can get strawberry ice cream. That's just kind of my perspective. Unfortunately, that's the perspective that a lot of people in America have about the gospel because the gospel is pretty straightforward. God made everything right. We screwed it all up, including ourselves. And in the process, we brought sickness, disease, and anger, and hatred, and violence, and all kinds of things into our existence. And Jesus, who loves us, came and died for us on the cross, rose again in power over the very death that we had caused, and has promised us eternal life. You need that. You need to know that. You need to believe that. You need to live that. And you really don't need to add any strawberries, chocolate, or nuts to that. You just need that. But in America, it is amazing how we keep trying to add things to the plain vanilla gospel. We have the liberal church in America that's trying to add cultural morality. Well, I just need you to know God said there were some things that were right and wrong, and he hasn't changed his mind. And just because it's popular to believe that certain sins are really cool doesn't make them right. We need plain vanilla gospel. And yet here we have this part of the church of Jesus Christ in America trying to add flavorings to the gospel that are never supposed to be in there. And then we've got the holiness side, and they're trying to add rules. God said certain things were right and wrong, and there were a whole bunch of other things that he said, I don't really give a hoot. I don't care. I need you to do the basics, and I don't care about this other stuff. And we've got people that are trying to help God out. It's like, well, you know, if God really knew what was going on, he'd think that was bad, too. <laughs> I don't think he cared. That's why he didn't say anything about it. So we have some people that are trying to change what he said. We've got some people trying to add to what he said. We've got some people that don't want to have a personal relationship with God. They just want to study him. I will tell you that there are several people in this room that you can look up on the Internet, and you can learn about them. I'm one of them. You won't learn anything very good about me. Because <laughs> it goes back to when I was on city council and there were some people that didn't think I should be there. And they posted a whole bunch of stuff on the internet about me. You can go on the internet and find out all kinds of stuff about me. But you will never know me by studying that stuff. The gospel is not about knowing information about Jesus. It's about knowing Jesus. 
You have to have a relationship with him. He has to be at the center of your universe. You have to know him, who he is, what he's thinking and feeling, what he has said. You need to know him, not just information about him. I'm afraid sometimes we we treat the gospel in America like it was craft beer, you know? Oh, I'm going to make this little batch, and it's going to fit my flavor because I, I, really, I really like this flavor, so I'm going to do that. And You can brew your own over there. You, just, you have your own religion, and I'll have my own religion, and everybody gets their own flavor, and we'll just brew this kind of craft religion that we, that we all like and prefer. Instead of saying, no, everybody gets vanilla. Everybody gets vanilla. Because we all have preferences, right? I have preferences. Do you have preferences? I even have religious preferences. I have spiritual, I have church preferences. There are some songs we sing that I think are incredible. I mean, they tell the truth. They get to the heart of the matter. The tune is good. It's got a little bit of a something to it, you know. It's not just, you know, lullabies with Jesus' words. It's, you know, it's got a little zip to it. You know, I, I like those songs. There's some other songs we sing I can't stand. They are a waste of breath as far as I can tell. I'm going, why? The words don't make sense. The melody doesn't fit together. It's way too long. Oh, that's one of the things that gets me. It's got 14 verses, and each verse is three minutes long, and it's like, are you kidding me? Just give me something about Jesus is good that I can sing a couple of times. I'm good. I can learn that song. I can't learn this other one. I have preferences. I will tell you that none of my preferences matter. None of my preferences matter. And I'm going to be bold enough to tell you none of your preferences matter either. They are simply your preferences. They have nothing to do with right or wrong, good or bad. It's just what you prefer. And your preferences don't matter. I think I got a Bible verse that backs it up, okay? See, that. I said that, and some of you are going, oh, now, wait a minute. My preferences are Jesus' preferences. He likes the same songs I do. See, some, you know, some, of you, some of you are going, oh, wait a minute. You know, my preferences. Look what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. He says, I have applied all of these things to myself and to Apollos for your benefit. Apollos was a teacher, a Christian teacher that came out of Alexandria, Egypt. He was incredibly well-educated. From what we understand, he was also very eloquent. Paul was at times fiery. Paul was at times passionate. Paul was not always eloquent. He didn't use the big words. He was a little more street, earthy kind of guy. Apollos was the, Apollos is very polished. He's got all the big words. He's one of those kind of guys. And I will tell you that people have preferences. Some people like that earthy realness. Well, Paul's just, he, Paul's just authentic. He's just, he's just saying it the way it is. And other people are going, oh, yeah, but he's kind of crass and he's got bad vocabulary. Now, I, I like Apollos. Apollos knows what he's talking about. You can tell because you can't understand half of the words he uses. He's really smart, you know. You've got preferences. Everybody's got preferences. Paul said, hey, guess what? Apollos and I are working for the same mission, but we don't do it the same way. We don't speak the same way. We don't communicate the same way. He says, I've applied what I'm about to tell you to myself and to Apollos for your benefit that you may learn by us to not go beyond what is written. Don't go beyond what is written. Don't start adding stuff. Don't start making up stuff. Don't start saying stuff that isn't in there. You need plain vanilla gospel. 
God made it good. We screwed it up. He came and died to save us from ourselves. We get eternity in heaven. You need to stick to the gospel and quit adding to what's been written. And so that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against the other. Well, my preferences are better than your preferences. I mean, I can tell you that without hesitation. All of my preferences are better than yours. That's why I prefer them. But be honest, you think the same thing about your preferences. You think your preferences are better than all of our preferences. That's why you prefer them. Paul said, I'm telling you this. I'm using myself and Apollos as an example so that none of you may go beyond what is written and that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against the other. Paul is saying exactly the same thing to the Corinthians that he said to Timothy. He's saying it from a different perspective. Over here, you have the Corinthians who are puffed up, who have got their preferences together, who have decided that they are going to be at the center of their universe with a little Jesus thrown in on the side. And Paul is looking at them saying, hey, you that are puffed up, let me unpuff you. It's not about you. It's not about your preferences. It's not about your pride and your arrogance. It's not about what you prefer. That's not the point. Get out of the middle of the universe and put Jesus back in the middle of the universe. That's what you need to do. He's confronting their arrogance. With Timothy, he's, in, he's confronting his, his timidity, his fear, his anxiety. He's saying, Timothy, because of your fear. Over here, it was because of their pride. They put themselves in the middle and put Jesus on the side. Timothy over here is afraid, and he is facing the same temptation. That's to put Timothy in the middle and put Jesus off to the side. It's the same exact concept. It's written from two different points of view. So I will simply tell you, some of you that are arrogant and puffed up and think your preferences are all that, we're just going to you know, deflate your little ego there for a minute and say put Jesus back in the center instead of yourself. But for those of you who are afraid and anxious who think you have to protect yourself and save yourself and are seeing the world as a threat, you need to move away from that fear and anxiety. You need to put Jesus back in the center of your universe, and you need to live by faith. You see how it's the same warning? Well, please tell me you saw that it's the same warning because I want to go to lunch. Okay, you see that it's the same warning? just comes from two different perspectives. Paul talks about the same things to the Colossians. He talks about the same thing. To the Galatians, we're not going to take time to read all of that. I will simply just wrap it up this way to say that the strength of the gospel is in its historically grounded, timeless application that fits all cultures and all circumstances. And anytime you try to improve the gospel, you make it worse, not better. If you try to take something away from it because you think it's too complicated, you make it worse. If you don't think it's covered something and you have to add something and help Jesus out, you make it worse. If you try to make it gospel-centered around you instead of Jesus, you make it worse. Pure, plain, vanilla gospel is what we need. And this opening section ends with one of the most famous verses in Scripture, for God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of love and power and a sound mind. That's what we need. We need Jesus at the center of the universe. You shouldn't be standing in the center of your world out of your pride and arrogance. You should not be standing at the center of your world out of fear and anxiety. You need Jesus to be at the center of your world, the real Jesus. Not the make-believe Jesus, not the made-up Jesus, not the Jesus plus something, 
not the Jesus that you prefer that only sings the songs you like. You need the real Jesus at the center of your universe. So whether it's arrogance or it's fear that's driven him out and put you in the middle, you need to, by faith, step out of the middle of your life and your existence, put Jesus back in the middle, and to start to see yourself and the world through his eyes instead of yours. That just needs to happen. And it needs to be plain vanilla gospel. And in the midst of what you and I are going to face in these last days, terrible times will come, Paul will say in chapter 3. Terrible times are coming, Timothy. But in the middle of all of that, God has not given you a spirit of fear. He has given you love, power, and a sound mind. He's given you the ability to respond to people not as threats, but to respond to them out of love. He's given you love not fear. He's giving you the power to deal with whatever situation is that you face. We are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses who for thousands of years have proven that God is faithful to us. He is faithful in any circumstance, in any situation. God has given you love to respond to people. He has given you power to respond to situations, and he has given you a sound, disciplined, clear, sober mind so that you can understand who God is and what he can do in our lives. That's what we need at the center of our existence. There is a song that says, it is well with my soul. It is well with my soul. Some of you know the story of that song. There was a man who was a Christian in Chicago in the previous century. He was a wealthy business owner. He put his wife, and I believe it was his two daughters, two or three daughters, put them aboard a ship, sent them to Europe. They were going to spend their summer holiday in Europe. On their way over, there was a storm. The ship was sunk. He lost his entire family in that accident. Before he could get to Europe, where there was a memorial for the people who had died, and before he could get there, the great Chicago fire happened, and he lost his business, everything he owned. His wife is gone, his kids are gone, his business is gone. He's aboard ship, and the captain calls him up and says, to the best of our understanding, this is where the ship went down that your family was on. It was in that place physically in that place at that moment that this man wrote the song, It Is Well With My Soul. It was not well with his emotions. It was not well with his relationships. It was not well with his business. There were a whole lot of things that were not good, but it was well with his soul. Why? Because he had Jesus at the center of his universe. If you let your fear, your anxiety, if you let your arrogance, whatever it is, if you let that move you to the center of the universe, suddenly you start to see everything and everybody from the perspective of you. And when by faith, regardless of what you face, you put Jesus back at the center, suddenly you begin to see things in a different light. And I will tell you that that's miraculous and supernatural. I cannot understand how a guy can stand on the deck of a ship at the place where his family died and say, it is well with my soul. 
I don't get that. I can't put myself in that place and understand that. But what I can tell you is that I am surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, and one is this man from Chicago who wrote these words. And those witnesses are telling me, if God is at the center, not a little religion on the side, if God is at the center, it is well with my soul, no matter what's happening. Timothy, terrible times are coming. But I need you to know, this thing didn't start with you, and you are not alone. And God has not given you a spirit of fear, but a power, love, and a sound mind. And you will endure, and you will despise the shame, and you will win your race. You will win your race. So from the middle of all of this stuff we've been going through, you've lost sight of that a little bit. I'm going to ask you to be courageous. I'm going to ask you to do this while we sing this, just, just this part of the song that says, it is well with my soul. If you need to put Jesus back in the center of your universe instead of yourself, I'm just going to ask you to stand while we sing. And just as an act of faith, say, God, I've been standing in the wrong spot. I've been standing in the center instead of you there. I'm going to stand up. I'm going to move back. I'm going to put you there. You're going to be at the center of my universe. Because some of you have been watching way too much Fox News, getting way too angry. You lost your attitude, you lost your perspective, your faith has gone a little sideways. Some of you have been watching some people tear down some things that you helped build. Lost your attitude, lost your perspective. You need to put Jesus back in the middle. So, Father, I just want to pray for my brothers and sisters. And I guess I just want to pray from the perspective of my own confession. God, there's been some things that have just happened that have caused me to move myself into the center of my own universe and say, this is what I think and this is what I prefer. And this is my perspective on that. And I've gotten frustrated. I've gotten angry. 
I got consumed with the fact that I didn't think it was fair, didn't think it was right. Had conversations with people that weren't even there and that certainly wouldn't listen to me even if they were. And so God, I just want to confess to you that there have been times when I've moved you out of the center of the universe. I've moved you off the throne. I've crawled up there and said, hey, the world needs to listen to what I have to say. Father, I pray that you would forgive us for that. As tempting as it is, and in those moments when we, we actually are arrogant enough to think that we've got it all figured out, or at those moments when we just become afraid and we're going, I am so under threat here. This is going to hurt me in some way. This is going to harm me in some way. This is going to take something from me, and I have to protect it, and I have to work for it. Whatever it is that caused us, God, whether it was our arrogance or our fear, God, whatever it was that caused us to do that, we just confess the sin of that and ask God that you would help us. Having fixed our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, that we would run with endurance the race that has been set out before us. But that we would cast aside everything that would slow us down. So God, I want to be able to go up into those bleachers with those people of faith. And I want to have a medal in my hand that says, I won my race. Just like they won theirs. God, I want to win my race. I want it to be well with my soul, no matter what happens around me. Thank you, God, that you are good. You are big, bigger than anything we face, stronger than anything we're asked to do. Thank you, God, for being you. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Go win your race. Be a light in a dark place.